this evening, I'm going to be discussing uh, a few ideas regarding the authorship of the four branches of the Mabinogi, and specifically looking at a very interesting idea that was put forward by uh, the scholar Andrew Breeze. But before we get there, I just want to sort of lay out some of the other theories that have been put forward with regards to the author of the four branches of the Mabinogi. Um, of course, there have been countless suggestions, um, but none of these suggestions and theories have ever been conclusive because the reality is there simply isn't enough evidence to say conclusively either way who is responsible for writing the four branches. They were clearly a very talented author and storyteller. They weren't strictly writing as uh, an oral storyteller, although Shona Davis has uh, shown that there are many oral storytelling techniques uh, in the, the, the body of the four branches, if you like, uh, in the way that they've been put down. But also, it's quite a, a conscious literary text as well. It is a written story. So either this is a storyteller um, uh, performing for a scribe, uh, reciting the story for a scribe, and the scribe then writing it down, or perhaps the scribe themselves have um, made some amendments and improvements and some additions to the, the text itself. We don't know. But whoever it was that came up with this version of these traditional stories, they were clearly a very talented uh, and very skilled uh, story maker, someone who could craft narrative well, who understood how to create um, deeper structures within a narrative. For those of you who've sat the Four Branches course, you'll know that there is a whole second part to the study of the Four Branches, which looks at interlacings, these this deeper mythology, which appears to be embedded uh, in the tales, this underlying structure, this underlying pattern of interwoven episodes uh, that exist in the four branches. Very, very fascinating feature of these ancient tales. But whoever this author was, they were clearly aware of storytelling on this very deep and profound level and knew how to evoke the different myths of the Welsh nation through story. Anyway, the first person I'm going to mention is an editor of the Four Branches of the Mabinogi, an early editor, that being Sir Ivar Williams, uh, one of the giants of Welsh uh, studies, of course, responsible for editing the Taliesin historical poems, the poems of Aneirin, uh, and also he um, published an edition of the four branches from the White Book of Rhyderch manuscript back in the 1930s. Uh, and this was his thinking uh, about who uh, was responsible for writing the stories. It is likely that the man was a David man who knew of the legends of the North and the South. It's not the misspelling of names of persons and places in Gwynedd that proves this. There are a few um, inconsistencies in the spelling. Um, of Gwynedd names, uh, which could be the fault of copyists from the south. So this could be uh, later copyists creating later uh, copies of the original text uh, being responsible for these misspellings. 
Um, but rather, it's not those mistakes, but rather the reference to David and the obvious sympathy with the men of the South, not to mention the role of Prideri, Lord of David, in every one of the branches. And Ivor Williams uh, really puts forward um, um, the first generally accepted opinion, let's say. Not everybody accepted that this was the case, but I think most people trusted Ivor Williams. So a lot of people thought, yeah, he's probably right. And this is one of the earlier ideas about the authorship of the four branches. And in many ways, um, later theories or the more popular theories that came after really begin here. Uh, Princess Makana, um, who is an Irish scholar, but who uh, received his education here in Wales uh, and was very, very familiar with um, the, the, the Welsh classics as he was the Irish classics. Um, his idea was really based on Ivor Williams's idea here because he puts forward the idea that it was uh, a monk by the name of Rhigavarch who put the four branches together. Rhigavarch was the son of the bishop of St. David, Silien, who was bishop twice actually in his time. Um, and Rhigavarch was... Uh, one of the more prolific uh, Latin authors of the period. Uh, and he certainly would have had the necessary skill and the necessary cultural connections to create such a collection. Um, and also Princess Makana sees some similarity between the work of Rigavarch and the four branches, uh, namely uh, this connection here between a very short poem of Rigavarch's, the setting of Rigavarch's poem on an unhappy harvest, which is essentially a very short Latin poem about mice stealing a farmer's harvest. The setting of Rigavarch's poem is different, but the echo is clear. Rigavarch's host of mice can hardly be disassociated from the other immense host which consumed Manawadan's wheat. For those of you who don't know, in the third branch, the main character Manawadan plants crops and they're stolen by a plague of mice. The coincidence is all the more remarkable because of the rarity, if not the uniqueness, of the motif on which the mice episode in Manawadan is constructed. I have consulted several of my folklore colleagues on the matter, but so far they have not produced other instances. The fact that it is so rare might suggest that the Manawadan story is an imaginatively elaborated version of the more realistic incident versified by Rigavarch. So this is one of the planks of Makana's argument for putting forward Rigavarch. My own response to this theory would be that the church don't really get much of a mention in the four branches at all. The branches are, of course, composed in a medieval idiom, which means that there are constant oaths and swearing by God and calling on God to witness. But the, the structure of the stories themselves doesn't really bear um, uh, much of the impression of Christian influence, although some um, modern scholars have uh, tried to argue differently, but I don't really see it. And also, the only place where there's an explicit mention of the clergy is the fourth branch, sorry, is the third branch, where they don't come off very well at all, because, of course, they are all disguises, 
the um, the monk, the cleric, and the bishop in the third branch are all disguises for a supernatural enchanter who is really a very pagan figure. Um, and the story would suggest that we're not supposed to trust the clergy and that they are, you know, concerned with or overly concerned with status and so on and so on. Read the third branch if you're not sure I'm going on about. But it's not a very convincing argument merely from the contents of the stories that they are composed by a monk or composed by one of the clergy. They're just not very Christian uh, in their contents, in their themes. Those of you, again, who've sat the Four Branches course will know what I'm talking about. Um, there are some very clear themes that really are quite radical in a medieval setting that in many ways would go or would question the patriarchal power of the church. But anyway, that's another conversation. The Four Branches essentially as a radical text, as a text which question the validity of the traditional mythology, um, I think also, uh, you know, brings into question this idea that they're composed by uh, one of the clergy. Anyway, another idea that's been put forward in more recent years is, of course, this very fascinating theory by Andrew Breeze that the tales are, in fact, the work of a noblewoman. We'll come on to who this noblewoman is in a moment, but just very quickly, I'm just going to go through some of the reasons why Andrew Breeze thinks this. And his main uh, argument is that the stories themselves, and specifically the female characters, they really betray a female perspective. And he believes that it would be really strange for a man to have written these parts of the story, and therefore it's far more likely that they are the work of a noblewoman. For example, he um, he gives, well, he gives loads of examples, but one of his main ones is with regards to Rhiannon and how Rhiannon in the middle of the first branch responds to the betrayal of the midwives. If you haven't read the first branch, go and read the first branch or subscribe to the course and on the website so you can go and learn about it there. But fundamentally, um, Rhiannon uh, gives birth. She falls asleep. A giant claw steals her child. The midwives who are present think that they're going to get the blame. So they smear her face with blood and blame her for the disappearance of her child, accusing her of eating, of consuming her own child. And she is, of course, uh, innocent of this, of this crime. The way that she responds to this, according to Andrew Breeze, really betrays a female perspective that this type of experience, uh, the anguish and the, um, the, the pain that Rhiannon experiences could only really have been um, presented uh, by a, a, a female author. He puts it like this. The author described this incident in the woman's quarters with a convincingness that might be thought remarkable for a male author. The pathos of the scene when Rhiannon, waking to find her child gone, pleads with the women to tell her the truth, likewise shows a power that would perhaps be surprising if a man had written it. Now, before we get too deep into this, I would just like to point out that there is an assumption and an assumption based on lots of, you know, pretty good evidence that 
medieval Wales is a heavily patriarchal time, that misogyny is rife, and that uh, the, the vast majority of men have no empathy with uh, the experience of women. I don't think that's strictly true. Yes, it was a heavily patriarchal uh, time. Yes, there was lots of misogyny. But not all men are monsters or idiots. Of course, men, uh, uh, different men would have had the ability to empathise with the experience of women. So I don't, I don't think it's conclusive. But it's also, you know, very interesting that this could be the case because we can also accept that, yes, there was lots of misogyny and chances are most men weren't that empathetic to women. Um, another example that he gives is the affair of Bloodeyed and Granu. The affair of Bloodeyed and Granu is written from the woman's point of view. It is her seduction of him rather than his of her. If a woman composed the four branches, she might naturally describe a love affair as seen and promoted by the woman. Now, this for me is a little bit more convincing uh, than the earlier example, because when we look at the way this episode is framed, it does present the woman's perspective. This is the, the section uh, Andrew Breeze is referring to. Bloodeyed looked at him, at Grano, and from the moment she looked, there was no part of her that was not filled with love for him. So we begin with her perspective, yeah? And he gazed at her, and the same thought came to him as had come to her. So even his experience is expressed in reference to her experience, yeah? We understand him through her, essentially. He could not hide the fact that he loved her, and he told her so. She was overjoyed, and their talk that night was of the attraction and love they felt for one another, and they did not put off making love to each other any longer than that night. That night they slept together. So yeah, you can see there, the the episode is grounded in Bloodyeth's perspective. It's her seduction of him, essentially. So I think that's a pretty convincing argument by Andrew Breeze there. Again, not conclusive, but quite convincing. So Andrew Breeze goes through many, many examples of what he believes to be female perspectives in, uh, in the story. Some of them not so convincing, some of them very convincing. And then in the second part of his argument, he goes on to describe the circumstantial evidence for Gwenllian Verch Griffith being this female author. This is an artist's impression. Uh, this is actually from the cover of Andrew Breeze's book. Now, Gwenllian Verch Griffith was the daughter of Griffith Ap Cynan, who was the, the Prince of Gwynedd. And Griffith Ap Cynan was a relatively successful prince. And Gwenllian, being the, a princess of Gwynedd, was obviously married off to another nobleman, and she was married off to Griffith ap Rhys from the kingdom of De Heibarth. Gwynedd is up there in the northwest, and De Heibarth at some times was a, a kingdom of, of equal size and importance in Wales. Uh, it made up all of Dyfed and Ceredigion, and even at times parts of Brecheiniog, uh, of Brecon. When Llian is married off to Griffith ap Rhys, um, down in South Wales, and she goes to live with him at his residence in Caio. Now, Caio is pretty much on the border between Dyfed and Ceredigion. 
quite close to many of the events in the first part of the first branch. So usually we think of the first branch as occurring in Arberth, which is usually interpreted as uh, the mound just outside of Narberth, Arberth, down in South Wales. But there are other candidates for the Gorsedd Arberth, for the magical mound of Arberth, of course, further towards uh, Ceredigion. Not only that, but Glynkirch, the place where uh, Pwyll goes hunting, is not that far from Caio also. So the the very first episodes of the first branch of the Mabinogi occur in the place where Gwenllian had made a home for herself. Now, the early 12th century was a very tumultuous time. There were various problems with aristocratic power in England. The Normans, of course, had uh, arrived and had conquered Britain, and there were various plays for power, uh, different lineages within the, uh, the the Norman elite were attempting to gain control of England. They hadn't made such a great job of conquering Wales, although they had conquered uh, a lot of uh, the marches, the borderlands between England and Wales, and a lot of the south. And they were, in many ways, pressurising uh, the, the Welsh lords of the south, of Dyved, of the Heibarth. So Griffith Apris at this time. Um, he was actually up in Gwynedd trying to uh, gather support uh, for his own territory, which was being attacked by Norman invaders. While Griffith was up in North Wales, there was no one to lead uh, his household and to lead his troops other than his wife, Gwenllian. Uh, and Gwenllian was actually killed uh, in a battle against the Normans. So she leads an army of Welsh warriors against the Norman invaders. Uh, the Normans win uh, and they execute her. And that all happens uh, in 1136. So she's also known as the Welsh warrior princess. Very proud and able woman, not only brave enough to uh, run into battle to defend her people and her family, but also someone who was from um, a very cultured uh, uh, class in Welsh society, which we'll come on to in a moment. But her situation really lends itself to her being someone who would have the, the necessary personality, if you like, and necessary uh, sort of desire uh, to do something like writing the four branches of the Mabinogi. It would make sense. There are many episodes in the four branches that not only describe the story from the woman's perspective, but also talk of women's power in different ways. Rhiannon in particular is clearly uh, an independent and self-willed woman. Not that dissimilar to Gwenllian in many ways. But regardless, we'll just look at um, a few more bits of evidence. So um, she lives in Cayo. She fights the Normans in, in Kidwelly, uh, down in the south there. And that's where she's killed and executed by the Normans. Uh, she's decapitated by them at the end of the battle. But some of the evidence that Andrew Breeze cites looks a bit like this. So the author, whoever it was, had a detailed knowledge of Gwynedd, a less detailed one of Doved, and a shadowy one of Gwent and the rest of Britain. 
The author knows of Granu's stone. So Llech Granu, Llech Granu, which is mentioned in the fourth branch, just over five foot long and still to be seen a mile from Festiniog, uh, up in the northwest of Wales, in Gwynedd. As regards Dyved, the region really known well is the Tavy Valley, which forms the northern border of Caio, where Gwenllian lived. This is also the place where Pwyll hunts in Glynkych, of course. So this would make sense. She was a native of Gwynedd. She moves to Dyved. She's relatively familiar with Dyved, but not as familiar as she is with, with Gwynedd. Andrew Breeze also notes that the royal houses of Gwynedd and Dyved were known for literary interests. The Latin life of Griffith ap Cynan, Gwenllian's father, the, the prince of Gwynedd, he has a Latin life, a pseudo-historical biography written about him, the Latin life of Griffith ap Canaan, written soon after his death, but known only from a later Welsh translation, is one aspect of this literary culture surrounding this family. Another is the poetry of Howell, uh, Howell ab Owain, uh, son of Gwenllian's brother Owain. So Gwenllian's nephew is a Gwynedd nobleman who is known for writing poetry. Howell's poems figure in the Oxford Book of Welsh Verse. If the four branches were by his aunt, Gwenllian, it would accord with the family's talents. These literary interests were also continued by Gwenllian's son, the Lord Rhys, who instigated the Cardigan East Edward 1176. The Lord Rhys is uh, a renowned figure in Welsh literature for holding this Eisteddfod, one of the earliest Eisteddfods we have on record. So this is, again, quite a compelling argument. She came from a family not only uh, that featured in Welsh literature, but practised Welsh literature at the highest levels. Her nephew, Howell, was a trained court poet. His poetry is as good as the poetry of other poets from this period. Um, we also know that her son was very, very interested not only in poetry, but also in the other cultural arts. So a very cultured family, a very well-read family, obviously. It's just something else to bear in mind is that Gwenllian was married to a de Heibarth prince, Griffith Apris, somewhat down on his luck, living in a reduced circumstances in the hills of Caio because of the Norman invasion, of course, which is why he wasn't present at her death. He was up in Gwynedd trying to garner support from his relations up there, from her family. And a strong note of David irredentism runs through the four branches. The first branch opens by describing Poet as Prince of David. Math, the fourth branch, opens by describing Prideri, son of Poet, as lord over one and twenty countries of the south, the seven countries of David, the seven of Glamorgan, the four of Ceredigion, and the three of Astratoi, really describing the traditional territory that should by rights be in the possession of her people, if not her husband, Griffith Apris. Uh, the four branches look back to the ancient glories of the realm of the Heibarth, an attempt to revive, which led to Gwenllian's execution at Kidwelly in 1136. So it's 
the attempt of the David nobility and Gwenllian specifically to revive the glory days of the Heibarth, as mentioned in the Four Branches, which leads to her death. Her commitment to the cause of a greater David tallies with the political implications of the Four Branches. So we can see that uh, she was really attempting to give David and Ceredigion de Heibarth now, the general territory, uh, a glorious golden history, that that's clearly part of the four branches of the Mabinogi. So even though this isn't direct evidence, even though no manuscript version of the four branches bears her autograph, nowhere do we hear of Gwenllian having written the four branches, I think Andrew Breeze has actually got quite a strong argument, a stronger argument, I would say, than uh, than other scholars in the field. And I think that that makes for a very interesting reading of the four branches. As many of you know, on the course, uh, I take the view that the four branches are a radical text that in many ways question um, patriarchy and even attempt to undermine the traditional notions of aristocracy. Um, Prideri being the son who should inherit David is actually a bad choice as the ruler of David in the four branches. This would suggest that if this was a set of stories written by Gwenllian, that she not only had direct experience of aristocratic culture, but also of the wisdom tradition of the Welsh through storytelling, but also she had her own insights into the problems of aristocratic power uh, and the traditional mythology of sovereign and sovereignty that we find in the four branches of the Mabinogi. <laughs> 